0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air. Welcome to Wo, Women on Air, a podcast celebrating and championing women who are taking risks, making waves and challenging the status quo in their fields. Join me as I interview women making their mark in communities all over New Zealand. They're innovators, leaders, changemakers, creatives, movers and shakers, and general boat rockers. Listen in as we get exclusive intel about the successes, the speed bumps, the tangents, and the tips that got these amazing women to where they are today. Welcome to this episode of Whoa. I have with me Nicola Smith. Nicola Smith is a producer and director based in Rotorua. She is the company director of production company Jack Media Limited. A former police turned storyteller, Nicola is passionate about telling the stories of those who don't have the privilege of voice. A proud Ngāti Kahungunu descendant, Nicola enjoys making Maori content that tells our stories. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicola. Uh, thank you for having me. How's lockdown treating you? I'll be honest, this lockdown I'm bored.
1: The last lockdown I was with my nana in a retirement village, and because uh, she's 95, so we had routines. I had things I had to do every day with nana. But this lockdown I'm kind of left to my own devices and I'm struggling to get out of bed. I'm starting to think about going back to bed at 7pm, so yeah.
0: It's tough. Yeah, I think I think we're all very feeling very similar to you. Um, I've enjoyed having slightly later starts. Um, not having to get up at six. I've you know, I've stretched that out to seven, seven thirty, I've hit snooze a couple of times recently, um, which has been really nice. Um, but yeah, I think You know, this is now that we've sort of been through a few of these, I think um, people have got a few more plans for the things that they're, you know, wanting to save, you know, to do in lockdown and stuff. So it's interesting hearing what people are getting up to alongside their usual routines. Yeah, it's
1: actually a logistical nightmare for the TV industry. I'm just wondering, did you just hear that mail come in? No. Okay, good. I just
0: heard
1: (laughs) it. Bing. Okay, good. Sorry.
0: Oh, good. Hey, listen, um, I would really like to hear a little bit about uh, your background because we know you're currently a producer in the TV industry. But, um, you know, if we rewind all the way back to the beginning, um, I'd love to hear the journey from the start to getting to here. So what were you like as a child or what was your childhood like? Tell me about that.
1: Um, yeah, I guess my childhood, when I think about my childhood, I was definitely... A happy child. I remember all my memories of childhood were happy. Um, I think it's kind of hard to, like, I guess I would have my own perceptions of what my childhood, what I was like as a child. But I mean, that's just my own memories. I think I was very alert. I was a very aware child. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I knew what was going on. Um, grew up with brothers, so I think if you've only got brothers, you become that girl who's Organising, even though they were older than me, I was always organising them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really know how to answer. I had a I, I had a really nice childhood. It was very different to how kids have to live today. It was a very outdoors childhood. Um, lots of sports. Um, yeah. Yeah,
0: and yeah. and where was that?
1: In Rotorua, a little yeah. community called Nungutaha, Um which was we call it a village, but it's it's not far out of Roturua. But because it's sort of there's a, a divide of rural um, landscape between Puturua and Ngōtaha. It feels like a village. And growing up there, it was like you were being raised in a village. Like we used to play um, cricket on the roads. Um, and the cars had stopped to wait for the over to end. <laughs> that, kind of, <laughs> that kind of childhood, you know.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you think that that's something that's continued or is that changed now If when, you, when you're back home?
1: Oh, it's definitely changed. I mean, the community I live in now is in town, Kotu, um, and there's definitely, I can still hear kids in the background playing, but they're not playing on the road, and I mean, maybe there's a little bit, of, there's a sense of community still, but that's probably more of an online community. There's a, a Facebook page that everyone shares information, but, you know, I don't see the kids all sort of playing on the street together, and there's a lot of kids around here, so it's, it's, yeah, it's not the same childhood.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah, times really have evolved and changed. Um, what was, did you did you go to school in the same community?
1: Yeah, primary school, we had a primary school there, so Nongotaha primary, so that was my primary years, and then um, most kids from Nongotaha went to Kaitao, which was just in town, for Intermediate, and then Western Heights High School, but halfway through Intermediate, my mum, um moved us out to a, a rural community called um, which was a farming community. So we went to a, a school there for two years. I actually left school at 15, so I did perform, I don't even know what that is in years um, now.
0: Yeah, when you left school.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was when you did school search. Um, school wasn't really for me. I was a bit of a daydreamer, and I wasn't bad academically, but I just didn't really see the point in it at the time. Um, just really wanted to play sports and hang out with friends in daydream.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, sounds that sounds good, like, actually. yeah, sounds, really sounds like a lot of uh, teenagers, actually. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, I mean, when you were, did you have any favourite subjects at school or were they all just a bit kind of, you know, not for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I, I mean, school was, I was capable of school and I, mm-hmm. uh, like primary school, I loved spelling and um, I was terrible at maths, so I always remember being bad at maths. But I liked spelling, I liked reading, I liked writing, all of those those things. But yeah, I just never—I wasn't that kid who was great at anything. I wasn't like amazing at anything. I was just capable of most things. Sort of very middle of the road child.
0: Right. Well, I guess Actually, that I think- would maybe depend on how we view capabilities, you know, or what we valued as being strengths you know at school you know um so perhaps you didn't see yourself as being you know um highly academically talented in any particular one but it sounds to me like you had a whole lot of other strengths when you talk about you know you're being alert and being aware
1: yeah it's funny I mean I guess being alert and aware is like the reason I know that I was middle of the road is that back in those days they used to Often within a subject, they would break you into the groups and you'd be acutely aware that those were the brainy ones. And then there was this massive group of middle ones, me, and then there was the ones that needed a bit more help, which was a small group again. So um, I think from a young age, you get conditioned to go, oh, I'm not good at this, but I'm okay, and I'm not bad at it. Um, so, yeah, I was capable at things. And, I, you know, I've got, I'm not mad about it. It was just how I... I was, (laughs) and how the system actually structured us.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And so you said you left school at 15, what did you go off to do? Actually, I
1: left school in New Zealand at 15, so I did, at a recent height, I did School C. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know what I got in School C, I just know that it wasn't great. Um, And then I went to live with my dad, who lived in Australia. So I went to um, Sydney, I went to live in Coogee Beach. Um, and I actually did, sorry, I, I lie, I did go to school there, but um, don't tell them this, but I hardly ever went. I just would get on the bus every day, and you know, it was a city. So here I am in Sydney, like, I'd get on the bus, but I wouldn't go to school, I'd just carry on into the city and was just, you know, daydreaming and enjoying the city life. Um, so needless to say, I didn't get any qualifications from that year yeah, either. <laughs>
0: So when you say you were daydreaming, um, what did that involve? Like what were you daydreaming about or what did you do when you were daydreaming?
1: I don't know. It's actually, um, I guess I was always looking for um, a life outside my own life, which is weird because my life was good. But I think it's that thing, maybe this is kind of when my desire to tell stories kicked in. You know, you watch TV and TV was always American or English. So there was other worlds, um, other experiences. So I was always daydreaming about going to those other worlds. And so when I went to Sydney, it was like, here I am in one of these big places that was like the world. But I guess in some ways, I, even when I was there, I was daydreaming about another world beyond Sydney. So, which is problematic, I think, <laughs> <laughs> because you should kind of at some point realize when you you know, you get to uh, experience what this daydream that you used to have was, when you experience that you're actually in it and you're living it, you should feel it. But I guess I was always just daydreaming of another a world, another time. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's yeah, that's really interesting. I guess that's you know another way of thinking about us being recognizing and being in the moment. That a lot of we hear a lot of that at the moment about mindfulness or um, being grateful for where we're at. Um, you know, and thinking about, you know, when we're kids, oh, what what I'm going to do when I'm an adult, you know, and then now we're, you know, if you're an adult, thinking about, oh, what I'm going to do, you know, next, um, you know, rather than sort of embracing where you're at. Um, but then there's something to be said for a daydream and looking ahead, otherwise we wouldn't move forward either.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, I mean, I'm, this is probably going on another tangent, but I remember... Um, when I was in the police, I had to go and see a psychologist after you go to a traumatic event, you have to go and see a psychologist. It's enforced. And one of the things that one of them was talking to me about was, I would always say that I was often daydreaming. And she said to me, you know, tell me about what one of these daydreams are. And the daydreams were so basic, like completely achievable things that actually were already happening in my life. But I was choosing to daydream about them rather than to experience them. And one of her sort of um, homework things for me was, when you go home today for the next week until you see me again, you're not allowed to daydream. Which you know feels like a shocking thing to hear. Daydream, we get told we're gonna daydream, you know, dream. But it was actually really good because I did actually start to live more in the moment um, and to go, okay, yeah, I'm actually, I don't need a daydream now, this thing is actually happening. I'm actually living a part of the daydream. So,
0: that's yeah. that's a pretty cool realization to be able to say I'm living my daydream. Um, yeah, I
1: mean it wasn't. I mean some of the daydreams are bigger and loftier, <laughs> and I wasn't living those. But you know, a lot of the achievable stuff, you know, I was in a good relationship, um, I had a good job, all of that stuff, um, I was living. But I was, I wasn't living it because I was daydreaming about another life, a different relationship, a different job, probably. <laughs> Yeah,
0: sure. I would imagine as a police officer, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got into the police, but I would imagine there might be a time when being able to daydream or disassociate from a situation you might be in could actually be quite handy, on the other hand.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think when I first started in the police, my dreams were, like my actual physical dreams when I go to sleep were... Um, overwhelmingly um, work-related. Uh, you'd you'd go and do a full-on shift and then you would go to sleep and kind of relive it. Um, so, yeah, to be able to find ways to cope um, with, you know, all of the trauma and the stuff that you go through as a police officer, I definitely think daydreaming would be a good option. I can't actually remember daydreaming so much around that time. But, yeah, definitely something that maybe they should be promoting. Go home and daydream, guys, after your (laughs) shift.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although I think we're meant to be daydreaming about getting into the police, aren't we? Hashtag hashtag better work stories, I think, is the campaign. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It is the campaign. And sometimes I look at that and it is a really catchy campaign and they've done well with the marketing around that. You know, there's a whole... You know, some fine print under that, you know, it's uh, better work stories, but all of those work stories come with a cost, um, and some of them beautiful and, um, you know, amazing stories of success and, you know, uh, uh, you know, wonderful connections with people, but then there's the whole other side of it that, um, yeah, and that it maybe isn't such a good work story.
0: Yeah, so. Geez, am so, I
1: taking this off on a turn I've PB already?
0: <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's fascinating. So, I mean, thinking about well, how did you decide to become a police officer? What prompted that?
1: Um, it's a really boring story, actually, because I actually didn't ever really think I was going to be a police officer. I was working after school, I went to work for IHC. Um, I worked in a residential home with five young men with different. Um, levels of ability. And I had a manager there who was an older woman, I'd say in her 60s. Um, she was single, had no children, and we got on really well. And so we, you know, she shared a lot of her life with me and I told her about my life. And one day she asked me um, what I wanted to do in life, almost like saying what I was doing now wasn't enough. So I kind of knew that I needed to insert an answer into that question. So I just sort of plucked out of nowhere I wanted to be a police officer. I mean, she got very excited by this. She said, oh, you'd be great. Um, anyway, she was a bit of a, a busybody. Um, <laughs> I won't mention her name. Because <laughs> um, and she basically got involved and contacted the, the police recruitment. And I got this phone call from a lady saying, um, we've got a recruitment day coming up. Um, come down here, uh, be at this place at this time and you can do some testing. Um, and one of my things is uh i'm a i follow the rules so when someone rings and tells me i've got to be at a certain place um i follow so i went and passed the test and next thing you know i had to go and do a physical and i needed a bit of time to get up to standard physically but yeah and then i passed that and next thing i was at police college i mean there's you know there was a process in between you know the first test and getting to police college but yeah it wasn't it wasn't something i uh, you know, aspired to be from a child. It was just something I fell into.
0: Right. Well, I guess you, you went with that opportunity. Um, and what what was your day-to-day like being in the police?
1: Um, I mean, I, one of the good things about the police is that nothing, every day is different, especially when you're frontline. You, you, you turn up at work and you go into, like, muster and you've got all of the cops there with you and you just get told who you're partnering up with that day, you kind of get a brief on um, what you have to, um, what you're looking for that day or what you're doing that day. And then you never, you go out in your cars and you, you actually don't know what's going to happen. It might be just 10 hours of driving around in your car and nothing happens. Or you can be, you know, um, yeah, doing all sorts of things, car chases and all of that stuff and death, you know, pretty much you never know what was going to happen in a day when you're in the place.
0: Yeah, I imagine that that can be exciting, nerve-wracking, um, you know, all at once, yeah. so yeah. I can understand So, Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I remember my first day um, out on the street, and you know, you've been away and you've done six months intensive training, and you come out and you've got this uniform. And the general public don't know that this is your first day on the job. So (laughs) you're dealing with them and you're just trying to remember all of these rules that they've taught you in in police college. And, you know, like down to how do I talk? You know, how do I, at what point do I pull out my notebook? You know, all of this stuff that you get taught. You're trying to, you know, impart this knowledge (laughs) while you're being a first day police officer. And, you know, they're just saying, just help me. And you're like, well, hang on. (laughs) I'm just figuring out how to help you first. It was, yeah. It's a terrifying, and basically when you get out of police college, you have to unlearn everything you've learned, because all of a sudden, you've got this other dynamic, which is a member of the public who isn't playing along like you used to play in the the role plays that you did at police college, so yeah, it was a very daunting thing being a new cop, and I was, I don't know, was I 24 or something when I joined, and often the people you're dealing with are twice your age, um, who are looking at you like, oh, what do you know, little girl? (laughs) You know, you can't tell me, so
0: Yeah, Yeah. and so as you got more experience, how did you deal with situations like that? If you were, you know, dealing with an older male, for example, being a young woman um, and a young Māori woman in the police, you know, what was, how did you sort of mitigate that or deal with those tensions? Yeah,
1: I think you get confidence pretty quickly in the police. You have to. I mean, if you don't form that confidence quickly, you, you just won't survive. And I think for me, putting on my uniform every day, like the the person I was as a police officer was very different to the person I was outside of my uniform. And I think you'll find that with most cops, you know, they put on that uniform, it's like, okay, here I go, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing today, I've got to do these things. So for me, I guess it's like a korowai. When you're Māori, you put on that korowai protection, Okay, what have I got to do? um, So for me, when I put my uniform on, I was like, okay, here we go, I'm just, yeah. I wouldn't i didn't you know tolerate it it, was, it didn't take me long to realize that i actually wasn't going to bow down to you know uh, enter swear word kind of guys um because i actually had a job to do and normally if i was dealing with someone it was because they'd done something wrong and um or yeah mostly because they had done something wrong if they had an attitude towards me it was because they'd been caught and didn't like it so but also I grew up with brothers so I'm like bro <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing you can throw my way that I haven't heard before so yeah yeah but yeah enough. like I, I think that uniform thing is a real thing like putting on your uniform after like in a really quick period of time you do get confidence that I don't think I would have had if I hadn't have worn the uniform I think sure. it just, you start going, this is, you know, I've got a job to do and this uniform signifies that I'm about to go and do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. And I and I understand that, um, and I've heard you talk before about there being some tension between you being in the police and your family in particular with, with the brother of yours. Are you yeah, able to, willing yeah. to talk about that?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, no, actually, it's funny because there's no real tension between, in, as a family, Around um, my life choices, so I chose to be a police officer, and at the time that I was um, recruiting, my brother was uh, prospecting to be um, to join a motorcycle club. You know, our, our we, we would use it; we'd say gang, but they say um, motorcycle club. So he was recruiting to be there, so prospecting. I was recruiting, um, but within our family, there was never really like a I don't know. Like we didn't even. My brother and I never had. Uh, uncomfortable conversations around it. Maybe Christmas might have been a little weird because um, my uncle was also um, he was part of the same motorcycle um, club, and so I remember one Christmas, him he'd had a bit to drink, sort of saying to me, "Oh, you used to be one of my favourite my favourite niece until till you joined the police." He didn't say police; he used another <laughs> word, um, and then we both just laughed, um, and then we carried on our Christmas day. So the tension within within us was never bad, but. Yeah, there was, I mean, it made my journey to get into the police a little, um, probably added another layer of um, applying. I had to, I I guess I had to um, prove that I wasn't going to be sharing police secrets with um, the gang. Um, And actually one of the, once I got into the police, once I got accepted, um, it was on proviso that I went to Auckland and didn't police here, I got to do it. Um, which I was thankful for anyway, because as a, a baby cop, I think, you know, it's a small town here, you know, just rolling out on your first day and seeing, I mean, you can't go anywhere in this town without seeing 20 people, um, <laughs> just the only way to the supermarket. So, you know, being a, a baby cop and having to deal with people that I was likely going to know would have been way too hard. So, you know, I think that was lucky for me. Um, yeah, and I, don't, I, mean, I guess it protected me too from lots of different
0: things yeah yeah I guess being you know put in a position where there might be some kind of a conflict of interest would be really challenging and so maybe that was you know a good decision on their part you know putting you in Auckland yeah. instead yeah I
1: mean I think most people I don't know if most people but a lot of people a lot of people I know that are within the police you don't have to look too far to find someone within their whanau who has criminal record? who, you know, might be a person of interest or, so I mean, I think we're all constantly having to navigate dealing with that as a cop, you know, mm. having to deal, and, deal with, you know, different members of your family who have different life paths. Um, yeah. My brother's no longer in the um, club now, so, and my uncle's passed away, so. But, I mean, we still, I've still got cousins who are um, active gang members. And I love them. It's such like a weird juxtaposition of, um, like, I, I don't know that many cops anymore. Like, once you leave, I think you sort of fall, I guess it's like leaving the gang. <laughs> so many parallels. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, once you leave, your commonalities are gone, you know. Like, and even if I was to go to, a, 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 like, a police barbecue socially, you know, the stories that I used to be, like, actively a part of you know laughing and engaged and now i'd be like "Mm, i'm not sure that's funny or i don't see the joke in it anymore because you're not there and you know the dark humor the black humor is gone for me Mm. um and i think that's kind of what it was like oh my brother like he doesn't roll in that circle anymore but like i'm sure it's not I'm a minister of the church now, but, you know, he's,
0: he's, he's changed his life somewhat. <laughs> sure. And, and you were, I mean, speaking of, you know, stories and, you know, people telling stories that sort of, um, you know, lead you, or I guess what I'm trying to segue into is how did you go? And I'm not doing very well at it. So I'll just, you know, um, just straight out ask, how did you go from being in the police to working in TV? How does that happen? Um, yeah, like, oh, man, I
1: mean, I've got got—I've had such a lucky life. You know, like my getting into the police was because of this incredible woman who decided that she was going to meddle <laughs> and get me in there, so, you know, her work. And then there's this other woman called uh, and um, Rogers who is similar to her, meddled in my life and got me uh, working for her. So she had a company here in Rotorua, and... Um, that made a show called um, Marae DIY, which is a Māori TV show. And she, I mean, she was a friend of a friend, so I socialised with her sometimes, but we weren't like, you know, in the type five type thing. But she heard that I'd left the police and she needed a coordinator or something, and she asked me to come and work for her. And I was like, hell no, I'm about to go and do my adult OE. I'm I'm taking whatever money I get given and I'm going overseas and I'm going to, you know, daydream again out <laughs> in the world and she was like oh yeah no cool 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 but um come around and have a cup of tea we we'll just talk about it it's, you know no big deal anyway that woman has just got the gift of the gab and um I don't know within half an hour she had me saying things like oh okay so I I'll do this and you know she fully made me put myself into the picture and yeah within by the end of that conversation I was hired working for her I, worked, I only did a short job for her but then got a um job interview for another job in Auckland. Didn't want it because I still wanted to go on this OE, um, but thought I should just go to the, shouldn't be rude, I should go to the interview. Um, Went to it and um, actually the the producer, um, fabulous um, queer man, he looked at my CV and he's like, so you've got absolutely no experience in TV at all. (laughs) Anyway. Cocky cop, ex-cop, I was like, oh, police, no use of the police officers, nothing I can't handle. And he loved it. He's like, oh, girl, so he hired me. So my <laughs> first sort of job was um, that was a production manager, which, you know, lucky for me, most people have to do a lot more jobs, you know, going up the food chain to get to that role. Um, so I was just fortunate, but I guess I just applied sort of all of the methodologies of doing police work um, to Um, production managing and then ultimately producing it's the same stuff it's managing people it's managing time budget you know all of those things that we all have to manage on a daily um yeah so again I was just lucky I was sort of supported by people who um meddled and got me into good meddled and made good decisions for me
0: (laughs) yeah well I mean I guess it's a bit of you know someone else meddling but you need you ultimately are the one that's taking up the opportunities as they come to you which is pretty impressive yeah. as well, that takes guts yeah. and, and courage and backing yourself
1: Yeah, I think for me too, I'm, I've never been um, like a career person, like I've had an amazing career and still continue to have a good career but I'm not driven, like I, I'm not the person who goes I want to make five feature films this year or I want um, you know, academy award winning something, I just don't think like that but I'm lucky enough to have people who around me who are like, ah, oh, do you want to do this job, Nick? And I'll be like, mm, um, I don't know, maybe. And then next thing you know, I'm doing this amazing job or I'm on a, another amazing show. Um, I'm just fortunate and somewhat accidental. But, yeah, like you say, I do I try to take the opportunities when they present themselves,
0: if I can. Yeah. And so um, your main role has been as a producer, I understand. So what is that... Sh- look like? What does that involve?
1: Um, I guess producing, I guess the root word is produce, so create things. Um, and every producer is different. I used to kind of think, oh, producers do this. But there's, there's creative producers who are um, heavily involved in the what you're filming, like in the actual story, the narrative. But then there's other producers who are more involved in the logistics, um, budget and schedule. But ultimately, the job of the producer is to make sure that the the work is done or the project or kaupapa is um, done and on budget and on schedule and meets the expectations of what you originally set out to make so it's, yeah you're kind of the top of the food chain if you will but then you have um, you, you heavily rely on the skill sets of your production team and your directors and everyone so actually that line is, isn't actually top of the food chain it's kind of more of a sort the the new word for that be when everyone's kind of equal, but at some point someone has to take responsibility for it and that's the producer.
0: Right. And so I guess you must apart from you know the organization and the logistical side of things, you'd be dealing with a lot of human beings who are diverse in their attitudes and capabilities and things. So what um, has that experience been like for you working with, you know, wrangling humans? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's
1: exactly it, actually. And when you're working in factual TV, it's um, the is smaller, so there's not as many humans that you have to deal with. But when you work in drama, um, the cruiser can be massive. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of people in there with their own um, lived experience who, come to things with their own baggage or expectations. And, you know, there's a certain amount of... Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard because you, you'll get a person who um, you don't necessarily agree with what their expectations of a job, but, you know, for, as a producer, you've got your end goal, and you know that you need to make this. so then you've got to go backwards. That's kind of like policing again as well. You go to make for me to get what I need. What do I have to do to do that? And you know, and that's across the board with every person involved in it. So, what does that person need to get what she needs, but to also make sure that I get what I need? So, yeah, you're constantly managing humans, and yeah, that's tiring. It's definitely tiring. I can come home from a day and not want to talk to another human for a week.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you don't have that luxury, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, can it, yeah, I can relate to that actually. Um, and, yeah. and I understand just from, again, having heard you speak and also um, been Googling and stalking you online, um, I know that you're a strong advocate for gender equity and diversity in life and the workplace. And what does that mean for you when working in the industry that you do? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I guess... For me, the big thing is around, I mean, I'm very aware that I've had lots of option, options in my life and opportunities. Um, and, you know, like I use the word privilege. I sit in a, a very privileged position. Since birth, really, I've been privileged. Um, so, and I've always felt like I need to use my privilege for good or to be able to help other people tell other people tell their stories. And so for me, it's around... Um, I guess even when I'm crewing a team like you know you might get told you've got these three people who uh, are gonna be great um first ad's for you but then I go okay cool that one there's very experienced but it's a uh, you know a male um in his 50s so he's had a really good career but then I've got this young um Maori woman who's done a few jobs now and everyone's raving about her and then I've got to weigh that up I'm like for me he's had his opportunities, he's had his, you know, he's used his privilege and, yeah, cut by him. But how can I use my privilege, which is now in the position of hiring, to give this other woman um, or man or whoever it is an opportunity? Um, So that's kind of something you're constantly having to navigate, navigate. But also you have to make sure that, like, I need to be very aware that I'm creating a safe and a really positive learning environment for those people. So... For that example, if I want to hire her, I need to make sure that there's like like a robust crew around her that are experienced and she comes away um, better, not, um, you know, uh, she comes away better having a good experience and it's a good experience for her, positive experience and not um, make her feel like she hasn't achieved. So that's kind of on me. Um, and that's you know that's about everything it's about men and women and gender and sexuality Um, you know I'm always having to I don't know I think you mentioned before like um, voice for me is very big like making sure that people have a voice and whether it's front of camera or behind camera I think it's really important I mean I'm not a um, I'm not a massive um, what am I not I can't, I
0: can't remember what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's such Sounds it's like such a complex space that you're trying to facilitate people through to provide opportunities where you can see there's a need to, you know, support someone's voice and being heard because you think it's an important thing for others to hear their yeah, their voice.
1: I think it's that thing around representation like if you don't see yourself or hear yourself then you don't feel validated and i think a lot of people who are you know dark skinned if they don't see themselves on tv um then do they exist i mean we all know they do but you know you you need representation Um, and it's the same with queer spaces you know you need to see queer people on screen um, and people who are less abled physically or you know, mental health stuff. We need to be talking about those stories and we need representation. And you know, using my privilege again, I'm, you know, I'm in a position where I have my own production company so I can um, be advocating for those people through putting in um, applications to make my own shows around you know, marginalized um, people. Um, I think one of the things that I just got funded was a show called Queer in Here, mm. and that's essentially a, it's a for Māori television funded by Te Māngapāhu no it's not sorry it's <laughs> it's for um it's for Māori television but it's funded by New Zealand and it's basically it's a young man who I've worked with called Aniwa and he is this incredible young uh, takatāpuri man who his whole sort of life has been wrapped in love from his whānau. So he, his queer experience has been really positive from birth. I think they identify quite young, you know, Takatāpū, yeah, he's, he's queer. So he he's really naive. So this whole series is really exploratory. It's about him kind of looking at the acronym LGBTQI+, plus, um, and what's happening in the community now, where it's come from, like what was the history, um, yeah, and sort of breaking it all down so that people who, you know, might be queer and still closeted might feel like they they might go, yeah, I can come out, it's going to be okay. Or if you're an ally or a family member, you might go, ah, shit, I didn't know that that's what they were going through. Um, and, you know, sometimes family don't understand and often we don't talk about sexual things with our mums and dads or, or our family or friends, especially if you've been socially conditioned not to. So I think... You know it's a series that hopefully the takeaway for a viewer will be positive and or informational educational so yeah it's a that's yeah we're still making that at the moment so but it's a exciting end I mean there's some amazing people doing cool stuff and every time I we do an interview I'm like wow did not know um showing my age you like know, wow didn't know <laughs> language, terminology, um, you know, there's so much to learn. You think you get to
0: a certain age, you know
1: everything, you don't.
0: <laughs> that sounds so amazing. And so what's the timeline on that? When will we be able to see this show?
1: Oh, gosh, I'm um, hoping February of next year. Well, I was actually hoping to make it, um, have it on here by the end of this year, but we'll probably be pushing it to Feb next year, um, which coincides with Pride Month anyway, so it's a, it's a nice time. For it to roll out, um, it's just you know we've still got some filming to do, you know just when we think oh we've got all the filming we need done I'll, I'll see something on Instagram and like I'll ring my um, friend Ramon who's the um, series director I say hey did you see this thing? There's this new collective they're doing this and all of a sudden we're researching that and then that sort of starts the storyline process again we're like oh maybe we haven't explored these things and we're also acutely aware that we are um, um, we both queer identifying but we're Both in our 40s. So, um, you know, there's a whole age group of people from, you know, 14 to 40 that we don't necessarily speak for. So it's up for us to make sure we get the right people on and do the right amount of research so that we can represent all of those people that we are not young.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's such a cool concept and it's going to be such an important. Program for especially for young people coming out um you know into the yeah. community it's gonna I think wow I mean what a meaningful project to be part of
1: yeah it's a, it's a burden though like there's a you know we, we often go oh my
0: god because you don't want to get
1: it wrong you know you, like you want the takeaway to be positive um and meaningful for people and I mean that's this I guess that's what, with all of our programs that we make, there's a burden of responsibility on us to make sure that we get it right, or to the best of our ability, or the best of our knowledge at that time, so, yeah, it will be amazing, but um, it comes with some sleepless nights of going, shivers, have we nailed this? I think we have, but, you
0: know well I'm sure you will have and you know you're as you say you're providing a platform for you know for people to share their stories and you know for other people to to learn from and make connections and I think you know that um you know that's that's such valuable work and um you know maybe igniting someone else's daydreams which is pretty cool (laughs) so and I mean that sounds so different or in my mind to something like I understand you've worked on cold case as well which sounds like a completely different kind of situation what was that like
1: it kind of does and it does sound different one of the things about me is I can draw comparisons to everything and often like I'll go back to policing and um, to my lived experiences all the time because for me to make sense of things I need to kind of connect it to me somehow. And um, so cold case was definitely it sounds different. Just, just oh just me I know. Sorry, with cold case it um, it sounds like it's a completely different genre or completely different to queer and here. but ultimately it's about voice. Queer and here is about allowing people to find their voice or to find out who they are and to be authentically themselves publicly. With cold case there's you know, at the centre of every cold case is a person who's passed away, and um, they don't have a voice anymore. And the reason it's a cold case is they never found the murderer. Um, so, and often those families of the person who's been murdered, you know, spend their whole lifetime wondering what's happened. And there's a, I don't know, I guess there's a, you never get to move on. And for me, when I did um, cold case. That was my consideration was that I didn't necessarily want to go down that path again because leaving the police, I was like, I just want to be a bit naive to some of the horrible things in life. So I had to really work around, I had to think about whether I wanted to go down that path again. But ultimately it was around, I mean, I got got told her the person um, that I was going to do story and heard about them. I was like, oh my gosh, this young woman has... um, you know, she's basically been murdered and that person has just moved on with their life and her, she's now dead and her mum is just stuck in limbo wondering what happened to her daughter. So for me around uh, telling those stories is around trying to give them that voice from beyond the grave in the hope that um, the police, I guess in the hope that the programme would shake a tree maybe people start talking again and all of a sudden someone gets arrested didn't happen with my story but um it did get some people we were talking again and the police did offer a um, hundred thousand dollar reward but sadly to date um no one's come forward but yeah so it is different to queer and here and, queer and <laughs> some of the other stuff that i do but it is also the same because it's around finding those, um, telling the stories of marginalized people or people who don't have a voice.
0: Yeah. And so I guess for me, I'm wondering, what do you think is the most rewarding experience you've had in working with TVX? It sounds like, you know, you're you're getting to spend a lot of time with people on the margins or people whose voices haven't been heard and helping them share their stories. Um, I mean, what is there a specific one that's been most rewarding for you or more of a sort of a summary of what's the most rewarding part of this for you?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, they're all really satisfying. Um, And because I mostly work in factual documentary, which is basically human stories, talking about the human condition, um, but I think probably the one that I'm most proud of was um, a series that we did for Māori television um, I think it was about eight years ago called um, Te Way Wairua, A New Hope It was such a wonderful series and I, it's it, because it's such a long time ago um, basically it was people who had done bad things and it was them saying it for themselves I beat my wife I lost everything um, for our family because I had a gambling um, habit I... Um, almost killed my wife because I had a pee habit. So it was these people's first-hand experiences and them admitting what they'd done. Um, and then, so so basically they talked about the darkness, like where they were, and then we, as, as storytellers, we went sort of through the process um, of what happened, what it was like for their family. we talked to their family members, we talked to people who knew them, and then ultimately the series ended up with the positive, like, where they ended up, so in the lights, so from the dark to the light. And essentially they were, we were looking at um, things Māori that had helped get them there. So a lot of people was around um, understanding their identity, like who they were um, as Māori, so maybe it was around learning their language, learning their whakapapa, going back to their marae, um, some was around healing, mirimiri, uh, learning haka. so kind of things Māori that got them to the light. Um, yeah, that was that was an important work for me because I got to work closely with these people who were really honest and shared their experiences, which were horrific sometimes. And there's a lot of tears, there's lots of crying. Um, I did an interview with a boy who tried to take his life and thankfully was unsuccessful. So that interview for me was powerful. And I, had, I had stopped several times because I was crying and he was going, Fire, you all right? Do you want tissues? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then interviewing his mum, you know, those stories are powerful. And I think the reason that I got so much feedback from people who live that life, those different lives, there was lots of different um, stories um, from people just going, thank you. Um, yeah. So I think the, didn't get, I mean, it was, it was on mighty television and it got, it was well liked, but I think maybe a bit of, yeah, for some reason it didn't get as much viewership as we wanted I'd love to make that again because I think it's an important body of work
0: yeah that sounds amazing I feel like I'm hearing a connection between a lot of the stories that you're helping people tell and share is this concept of resilience um it sounds like a lot of these people one way or another are coming through or overcoming um Challenges. Is there a sort of a a checklist that you consider when you're deciding whether or not to take on a project, or is it sort of a an unwritten kind of a checklist, but some kind of awareness of the the kinds of um, projects that you would work on as opposed to ones that you would pass on? Yeah,
1: I guess um, at this point I've been making telly now I think fifteen or sixteen years. So I think now at this point in my career, the checklist is, you know, can be quite short. It's just like, is the content good? Do I believe in the kaupapa? Um, are the people good? And is the outcome going to be good? Those are essentially, well, basically the, the things that I'd be looking at now. But I, when you're going through your career, you don't always have that luxury. You, you need to, you know, get fed. <laughs> you need to pay the <laughs> rent. Um, so sometimes you do have to, I think, I've definitely felt moments when I've compromised a little bit and gone I don't really want to do this um but if I can reconcile it somehow and go maybe okay I'll do this show because it's going to give me xyz experience or it's going to connect me with these people um and then I can reconcile that in my head and then do the job but uh now I don't now I'm less likely to do that. I I get um, asked to do jobs now, and sometimes I'm, you know, sometimes they're cool, they're cool, kaupapa, and the teams are cool, but they just aren't my, you know, not what I'm into now. Like, my storytelling now is definitely more uh, discerning. I I do want to tell the marginalized stories, stories of resilience, of hope, Um, and and uplifting. You know, there needs to be, I mean, life's hard, man, and just, I, I want people to watch things and go, oh, there's hope. There's a way out. Or, um, oh, that person did that thing, but they're still here. Or there's, these people are, you know. I just want them to, people to feel like there's a chance. I guess it's going back to daydream again. Oh my <laughs> God. Hey, I didn't plan all this daydreaming nonsense. It's
0: crazy. <laughs> no, but it's it's such a good theme. I think because um, day daydreaming doesn't have to be something that's light and um, superficial you know your your daydreaming as you call it sounds to me like um, you know you've been always heading towards it purposefully not just wafting around Um, and I like that you call it daydreaming but I think it's um, got stronger connotations to it than what we're used to hearing maybe. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, what advice would you give to uh, a woman or a young woman who's new to the industry you're in now or trying to work their way up through to the kind of role that you have? What what advice would you pass on to someone now that you've had a bit more experience? Um, I never feel like I'm
1: qualified to give out advice, but um, here we are. So I think... um, I think. I mean, I'm really fortunate. I know I keep going on about it, but and I'm, I'm surrounded by lots of awesome women um, who raise me up constantly, and and men. But I mean, my when I my go tos, if I think about them, they all women, um, who just want the best for me. So I guess my advice would be, advice would be to to find your tribe, to find your community, and it doesn't need to be women. It just it needs to be a community of people who are going to believe in you who are going to support you and who are there kind of constantly rooting for you, who are not trying to bring you down, who just want to support you and they want to see you be great. Um, It goes a long way. I mean, I I can sit here and think about all of the really special people in my life and they just want the best. Every time something cool happens, I'll just send a text, oh, i just got this. And you can feel their um, absolute joy for me, which is powerful you know it's powerful to know that you know because we I think everyone knows that we live in a community or in a country where tall poppy syndrome is massive and you know like I've got some friends who are doing big things and you know sometimes you'll see stuff on social media and you go oh why did you know that person's amazing and they're doing good things and people just want to cut them down so I think if you can find a whole lot of people who just don't want to do that, who just want to support you and wrap you in love and support, um, then that's going to take you a long way. I mean, the journey can be, I mean, I've had a, a good journey. Um, I've been lucky, fortunate. Um, but, you know, maybe that's because of the people around me. It is the, the Navaks and the Laras and the, you know, all these wonderful women around me who have supported me to get to where I am today. I it's awesome. Really
0: know where I am today, but I'm somewhere. <laughs> somewhere having, still having a daydream, um, which you know, <laughs> I think is awesome. And um, I mean, if you could go back in time to you know imagine a really challenging day that springs to mind for you, um, whether it was you know a week ago or you know ten years ago, um, and give yourself some kind of support or, a, you know, a whisper in your own ear about, um, you know, a way to, to get through it. What would you say to yourself?
1: Oh, God. Oh, um, I think, uh, what would I say to myself? I've had a couple of experiences fairly recently that um, I felt like people were questioning my integrity around a kaupapa. And that was tough because, you know, I mean, I guess people don't know outwardly the amount of thought process and um, the, you know the physical work, the mental work, everything you do that on the daily when you're thinking about any job that you do. So this in particular, this job in particular, I'd done a lot of work on it and I th- thought that I'd done the best by everyone, and then I got questions on my integrity, and that was, I don't know, I think integrity is like a strong it's an important thing for all of us. So when it gets questioned, that was physically, I felt like, whoa, you know, like, and I think, but my takeaway from that was I definitely went home and, you know, chatted with friends, might've had a wine or two and was like, I actually know that I'm, you know, just to believe in yourself, and went through my checklist of going, No, 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 I never do those things. I'm I'm good at this, I did that, I did that. And then believing in yourself will get you a long way. Um, believing in your, you know, your truth. Um yeah, I mean that sounds a little bit whimsical, but it helped me overcome that and I think it's something that I've had to deal with my even in my police career when, you know, having to deal with um, all sorts of different things in that um industry you just ha- always have to come back to yourself and your own values and there's a bit of a waffly answer
0: no that's good I, I, think, I mean yeah. I can yeah. relate to that I understand that and I think that um at the end of the day if I'm hearing you right we can't control what other people think um we can only control what we think about ourselves and you know as you say believe in your own truth and and you know go back and check you know did I did I compromise my values or their values or anything somewhere? And I think, well, you know, if you didn't, then, you know, you, you can't change or be in control of anyone else's reaction. You can only, you know, be in charge of yourself. So, um, but exactly it is what I hard. Mean. Thank you. Oh, no, no, I think you, you said <laughs> you it really well, it. <laughs> though. <laughs> but that's, that is really hard, um, you know, when anyone questions our integrity. Um, and I think, I guess, that would bring me, you know, quite nicely into my last question for you, which is always one that I ask people at the end of of the podcast, which is, what would you rather do, Nicola? Would you steer the boat, rock the boat, build the boat, or something else?
1: Is it what I'd rather do or what I do do?
0: Well, you can interpret that any way you like.
1: (laughs) Oh, I mean... I would love to think that I, I want to say rock the boat, but that is so not me. I am not a rock the boat person. I am a sit on the fence with everything kind of person, but I have so much respect for those people that go, the change makers. To make change, you have to be a person who's rocking the boat. That is not me. Um, I'm probably, and I'm not capable enough to build the boat. So I'm probably steering the boat, but steering it quietly and steering it for making
0: other people do it, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think know, yeah, I think that's a good answer. And I think we actually, from my perspective, I feel like maybe you do rock the boat, but you rock it subversively, or maybe you, uh, the current underneath the boat. I don't know, subtly rocking it because I feel like you know you're you're lift you're rocking the boat in my opinion from by lifting other people's stories into view, um, so that they're the ones who are kind of at the front, but you're behind supporting that to happen, which can be quite, um, you know, challenging to people's worldview, or you know, when depending on the stories that you're supporting yeah. people to share. So I think you might rock it more than you realise, maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's funny. It's just my lived experience is so varied, so I, I really find it hard to make a form to, you know to go it's this way or that way because I'm always like. Mm. I've lived this but I also know this through my brother's experience so I was a cop and I know that and then my brother did that Um, I'm Māori I'm Pākehā so I always feel like I sit on the fence but I mean maybe you're right I think I do I've got some friends who are agitators (laughs) to rock the boat so and I do like to feed
0: them stuff that I'd like to get out there (laughs) there you go (laughs) so that is steering the boat (laughs) yeah yeah well done very cool hey listen thank you so much for joining me today I've really enjoyed our conversation and I think we've um, had quite a journey in what we've covered and I really appreciate your time today especially during this challenging level 4 lockdown but it's been absolutely lovely sitting here having a chat with you so thank you so much you have been listening to WO women on air you can search for our page on facebook and we are at WO underscore podcast on twitter new episodes are available from the orfm dunedin website oar.org.nz and wherever you find your favorite podcasts